You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Have You Swallowed the Hook, Episode 3, with Thomas Bentley. Welcome back to Have You Swallowed the Hook, a 21st century challenge to the 19th century worldview of evolution. My name is Thomas Bentley, and I'll be your host again for night number three in this series. And before we begin to talk about this next hook, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, as we search now into the worldviews of evolution and the reality of creation, I pray, Lord, that you would help us and help those who are watching to see what's really happening in science today and understand how they too can see and know creation from everything that has been made. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me start today by really beginning this discussion by discussing about worldviews. Many years ago when I was working as a research engineer, uh, I was constructing a home, my first home. And you know how it is when it's your first home. (laughs) You want to go and you want to watch them do it. And so I would go and I would watch as they would dig the hole and then they would put the bracing in and pour this thing that has become the foundation of my home. And then once the home was completed, You couldn't even see that the foundation was there. But the foundation of the home holds everything up and holds it together. And friends, a worldview is like the foundation of a house. In your life, every one of you who are living today has a worldview. And the worldview is like the hinges that your life turns on. It's like the you are here place on the map that tells you how you live your life. Even though you don't think about it all the time, it becomes the foundation of your life. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at worldviews when it comes to evolution. What is your worldview when it comes to origins? And so let's talk about that as we look at this hook where they say there is no evidence of creation. And I I want to start here by saying most scientists that I know anyway that I've ever dealt with are really pretty intelligent people. And so you would wonder how is it that Natural selection, which can't add any information to cause one kind of life to morph into another. Random mutation can't do it. Time certainly isn't going to be able to do it. Why is it that these people believe in a theory for which there's no data, a theory for which there's no proof or no evidence? Well, the reason for that, friends, is because of their worldview. Let me share with you the worldview of naturalistic philosophy. The worldview that dominates science today is a philosophy, much like the philosophies of Aristotle or the old days. And these philosophy, this particular one, is the one that dominates science today, and it's called naturalistic philosophy. And let's take a look at what it is. And to do that, we're, I'm going to introduce you to a Harvard professor of biology. His name is Dr. Richard Lewinton. And he writes about what it is his worldview and how his worldview is. Now watch this very carefully. He says, Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. Now he's calling science what he believes and supernatural what I believe. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs in spite of its failures to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance in the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, like evolution, 
because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept the material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot into the door. And so here, this professor basically explains what his worldview is, and his worldview is naturalistic philosophy. Materialism is simply the application of naturalistic philosophy. And naturalistic philosophy, friends, is essentially atheism. Materialism, of course, is the application of that. And if you think about what naturalistic philosophy is, you have to understand circular reasoning, if you will. That's where you state your, your proof, both in your proposition and your proof. You state it, and you sort of rotate around. And this is sort of what they believe. They, they will come out to you and say, well, listen, nature is all that I see. Therefore, nature is all that there is. It's a very myopic view of the world. You can't ask a question like, well, where did nature come from in the first place? Where did all these natural laws, how did they get here? Where did we see all this design? Whoa, 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 you can't ask that because I will not allow you to put a divine foot in the door. I can't have anything that would have to be explained by design or by a designer. I have to be able to explain it only by what I see in nature. And so that's kind of the essence of naturalistic philosophy. And according to Professor Philip Johnson, he writes that without Darwinism, which is a materialistic explanation, scientific naturalism would have no creation story. And so by applying this philosophy of atheism on science, now evolution becomes the creation story for Darwinism. He goes on to write, he says, although most people believe that an enormous amount of empirical evidence supports the general theory of evolution, this is in fact an illusion. Most people in the intellectual world are certain that evolution must be true because it's the only tenable naturalistic explanation for the development of the complex life or life in general. And it therefore must be true if non-naturalistic explanations such as creation are ruled ineligible for consideration. The evidence is then built up on this pre-existing theoretical certainty based on philosophical presupposition. Non-evolutionary Explanations of the evidence are not considered, and therefore the evidentiary support which seems to exist is the product of cultural certainty rather than its cause or support. So in other words, scientists today don't allow any other explanation in because only the explanations based upon the religions of atheism or secular humanism are the explanations that are allowed. These are naturalistic explanations. Dr. William Dubensky writes this. He says, we are dealing here with something more than a straightforward determination of scientific facts or confirmation of scientific theories. Rather, we are dealing with competing worldviews and incompatible metaphysical systems. In the creation-evolution controversy, we are dealing with a naturalistic metaphysics that shapes and controls what theories of biological origins are permitted on the playing field in advance of any discussion or weighing of any evidence. This metaphysics is so pervasive and powerful that it not only rules alternative views out of court, but it cannot even permit itself to be criticized. And so here we have 
the world that science is living in right now. That's the philosophy of naturalistic philosophy that requires materialistic explanations of the world. And so when we think about what Mr. Richard Lewinton had said, he says, our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense. That's what evolution is. The patent absurdity of some of its constructs. The failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises. For example, where are all the intermediates in the fossil record? And of course, the tolerance of the scientific community for the unsubstantiated just-so stories. And so what's happening in science today is they are wanting us to look towards nature and asking nature to provide what it can never provide. Asking nature itself to produce and create new life what it cannot do. And in doing so, they basically ask us to bow down to the calf idols of evolution. He goes on to say, it's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, we're forced by our own a priori adherence to these material causes to create this apparatus, to create a set of concepts, to create a whole worldview, to create materialistic explanations. And I'll explain how that works in just a second. Materialism is basically a scientific theory And what materialism does is it applies naturalistic philosophy to produce explanations that only atheists and secular humanists would be happy with, (laughs) that they would agree with. And, you know, in a nutshell, that's exactly what it is. I'll give you an example. Let's take prayer. Now, as as a Christian and someone who is a pastor, I have been in prayer many, many times. And I can tell you, I have seen the answers to prayer. I know that God lives. When I pray, I can tell that, uh, that God is acting in the world. I don't know, maybe perhaps you've experienced the same thing. But to the evolutionist, they have to explain that with a materialistic explanation. They have to reduce it down to something uh, or bring it down to size. And so this is exactly what they do. This is from uh, Cambridge Harvard University Press, A uh, evolutionist named E.O. Wilson writes this. He says, The highest forms of religious practice, when examined more closely, can be seen to confer biological advantage. And of course, when this man uh, made this insulting statement, he he didn't think about the martyrs who, for their faith, died. There was no biological advantage for that. But the point is, is that here's the game. You take anything that that could be explained by, for example, religion, something like association with God, and you, you break it down, history, Israel, and you reduce it into an explanation that eliminates it. Uh, there's many re, uh, revisionist scholars today that are trying to eliminate the nation of Israel from the history books, even though archaeology has found them there over and over again because of naturalistic philosophy. Or take this Time magazine that I have at home, it said, the very front cover, it says, the God gene. Does our DNA compel us to seek a higher power? Believe it or not, some scientists say yes. This is simply a materialist explanation for religion, for Christianity. Oh, no, no, you have a gene, and the gene forces you to be religious. And so this is just an example of materialism. And even evolutionists know this to be the case. Take this man here. This is Dr. Michael Ruse. He's the guy that the, the, basically the courts or the people call in whenever there's a case where some state is trying, some school board district is saying, hey, listen, 
we really think we want to put in our books that just a sticker that says evolution is just a theory, or we'd like for just to explain to the kids this. They'll call this guy in to testify on behalf of evolution. And listen to what he has to say. He writes this. This is in uh, Thomas Woodward's book, Doubts About Darwin. He says, evolution, akin to religion, involves making certain a priori metaphysical assumptions, which at some level cannot be proven empirically. Evolution is promoted, he writes in another one, Saving Darwin's from Darwinians, he says, evolution is promoted by its practitioners as more than mere science. Evolution is promulgated as an ideology, a secular religion, a full-fledged alternative Christianity with meaning and morality. Evolution is a religion. This was true of evolution in the beginning, and it is true of evolution still today. And so what this very honest guy is telling us here is that evolution is a religion, and their religion is based upon atheism, and the word for it is naturalistic philosophy. So here's my point. If you're a young person and you're watching this, and you're waiting for the culture of this world, or perhaps some professor somewhere to validate your faith, it'll never happen, because it's like oil and vinegar. Naturalistic philosophy is the religion of atheism. And they are not going to ever validate your faith. In fact, they're going to take it and try to deconstruct it into something that they would agree with. And that's what's happening in our world today. You know, the Bible talks about this very thing. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 25, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that's what's happening today, friends. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And this is exactly what's happening today. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. In other words, an idea that man created of birds or four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And this is a prophecy that has come to pass in our very day. Because today, science, through the philosophy of naturalism, philosophy and materialistic explanations, through Darwinism, is now asking all of society to step and bow down and say, Oh, Father Chaos. Oh, demigod natural selection. Oh, goddess of time how you're capable of making complex things and going from very simple to very complex to add information to the genetic code of life. And this is what's happening in our world today. We are being taught to be pagans and to bow down to the calf idols of evolution. I'll tell you how bad it is. Uh, A year or two ago, I was getting The Economist magazine, and this one, February 12th, 2011, there was this story, and I'm not going to named this little creature up here, but it was a story called paleontology. It was called splay-footed, but not flat-footed. And the author of this story was perplexed. The entire story was talking about this little creature that you see here. It's like cricket-like creature that uh, 
you see in the fossil and you see the real one today. And the entire story was about this guy going, now why didn't it evolve? Well, we know that this fossil, he says, is over 100 million years old, but why didn't it evolve? And so he bats it back and forth. And finally, at the very end, he says this. He says, the first rule of natural selection is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Now, let me ask you a question. How could a purposeless, random process that's mindless, how could it ever know that something's broke? And if it did know that it was broke, how in the world could it know how to fix it? How, would, how could it ever know why some creatures would evolve and some wouldn't? How could a mindless process do that? What this man is doing, and, and you see it all the time in the news media, is he's inviting you to come and worship nature. He's inviting you to become a pagan and bow down and worship the calf idols of evolution. And that's exactly what's happening in our world today. Dr. William Dubensky writes about this in his book, Intelligent Design. He says, although in ancient times, graven images were not the most obvious sign of idolatry, idolatry is not so much a matter of investing any particular object with extraordinary significance. Rather, it is a matter of investing the world with a significance that it does not deserve. And that's what's happened in our world because of naturalistic philosophy, the desire for atheism in science today. We are now worshiping nature as pagans. But fortunately, there's another model, friends. There's a creation model. And what I'd like to do with you for a few moments is I would like for us to use scientific principles to teach you how you can actually go out into this world and see creation every day of your life. Would you like to do that? Yeah, let's try that today. Let's do this today. See, because in creation, in the creation model, the creator is the first cause of all the first prototype life and all the natural laws that we see in nature. And we would be able to expect then, if a creator, a, a creative mind made this, that we would be able to see design in it. And so that's what we're going to do here. You know, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it said, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So if we go and look at what has been made, we should be able to see the thumbprint of a designer in it. And I'd like to do that using scientific principles. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to go out and we're going to look for the thumbprint of the designer using principles that scientists use themselves. So we have to think about that for a minute. What sciences are there that actually look for a designer? Well, it turns out there's many. For example, forensic science. Forensic science wants to answer the question, were the chips at the door, were they made by an accident or by an axe? They want to ask the question, how did that happen? Or you have artificial intelligence, you have the Turing test, wanting to know whether this could be something similar to what we would make. It's a comparison. You have the cryptography, which is looking for out of, and, and, uh, and basically in unorganized things, looking for language, looking for complexity in things. You have archaeology, which is uncovering language and uncovering complexity from the past. You have SETI, which, you know, I don't know if you could call that a science, but it stands for Search for the Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And there are groups of people out there that try to listen for signals and try to see if there's a sign of technology out there somewhere. And so they all use scientific principles, and we'll just use those same principles.
And here it is. This is the number one principle that scientists, all of these scientific fields use, and it's the principle of complexity. Now let me explain what I mean by complexity. When I say that, I'm not talking about snowflakes, which really look complex, but they're made by natural processes. And I'm not talking about dirt, which has lots of parts, which makes it complex. I'm not talking about crystals that you see forming in caves, again, which are caused by natural processes. What we talk about in science when they talk about complexity is told to us by Dr. Ariel Roth. He says, by complexity, we refer to elements that must depend on each other in order to function properly and not just a lot of unrelated parts. And so things that are complex are things that are dependent upon one another. Let me give you an example. Take this website for a moment. Very popular website. You'll notice that it's complex because instead of, different, instead of numbers or dashes or dots, it's using characters, and the characters are letters. But on top of that, it's specified in its complexity because these letters have to be arranged in a specific order, otherwise you'll never get to that website. We know that if we were to arrange them like this, will I get to the website? No, you cannot get there. They have to be in a specific order, just like this, and then you can press enter and you'll go to that website. This is an example of complexity. It is specified in its complexity, as a matter of fact. It's a more stringent case of complexity. And what Dr. William Dubensky tells us is something interesting in his book, Intelligent Design. He says, complexity and probability vary inversely. The greater the complexity, the smaller the probability. So the more complex something is, the smaller the probability that it could just come about by chance and necessity. And so this now becomes a means for us to do an experiment. We can find out what the probability is of something coming about by chance and necessity, or we have to look for a designer. What uh, Dr. Dubensky tells us is that in probability, in mathematics, one chance in 10 to the 50th power is an impossibility. Uh, for them, a probability that small means that it could never possibly have happened. And even evolutionists know that there's limits to how far they can go, uh, although I can't see that they know that, but they, there really are limits. And so let me give you an example of this. Take the, the atheist Richard Dawkins, who wrote the book The Blind Watchmaker. Listen to how he talks about the limits that he sees in his theory. He says, in our theory of how we came to exist, we're allowed to postulate a certain ration of luck. <laughs> I don't think so. Suppose we wanted to suggest, for instance, that life began when both DNA and its protein-based replication machinery spontaneously chanced to come into existence. We can allow ourselves the luxury of such an extravagant theory, provided that the odds against this coincidence occurring on a planet do not exceed 100 billion billion to one. So now Mr. Dawkins has given us a level of of certainty here. He says he's setting the boundary now on chance, for example. So in mathematics, it's impossibility is one chance in 10 to the 50th power. For Dawkins, if I understand him correctly, and a billion, 100 billion billion to one, that would be one chance in 10 to the 20th power. Much easier case, I guess you could say. So now what we have is a boundary on design. Now we have a boundary. If something has a probability, if it's so complex that its probability of happening is so small that it's, it's less than 10 to the 50th, it's less than 10 to the 20th, then this has to be an informational pathway that shows us that this had to be designed. 
You know, the chips at the door, they had to be made by an axe and not by an accident. That's kind of the idea here. And what we can do is we can do an experiment. Let's, let's look at the best case. I, I was thinking about an experiment we could do that would be the easiest case for evolution and the easiest for us to understand. And that would be a case where we look at the formation of a protein. Let's do a review first. Now, in uh, atoms are basic units of matter. And then molecules are arrangements of, of atoms, like H2O. And amino acids are specific arrangements of molecules. And finally, proteins are specific arrangements of amino acids. It kind of goes like that. So with this as a background, let's take a look at something for a moment. Let's look at proteins. You know, proteins make life possible. They consist of different amino acids, 20 in living things. They're linked together in long chains, very specifically. And there's trillions of them in living things. As a matter of fact, we are proteins. You have hair, hemoglobin, insulin, lots of different things that you have are all proteins. And so it's very important for us to understand that. And for a protein to form, it takes amino acids. And only 20 out of all that are available, there's only 20 in living things. So I was doing some research, and I found a book called, uh, from a scientist named Jay McCain. He has a book called Blowing the Whistle on Darwinism, where he did a study of NASA. It turns out that uh, when NASA was looking for life on other planets, they were doing studies on what would they have to look for. And in their studies, they, deter they determined this, that in living things, they're only, they only use left-handed amino acids. It says, although most amino acids can exist in both left and right-handed forms, life on Earth is made of left-handed amino acids almost exclusively. No one knows why this is the case. And so in chemistry, you know, if you remember isomers, isomers are where you, you have two hands, left and right. They look identical, but the thumbs point in different directions. And the same thing here. In living things, the only amino acids that are used in them are left-handed. Even though there's left and right, only left-handed ones. Wow. With that information, we can do a little experiment. We can see if evolution is possible. Let's do an experiment right now and see the best case for evolution if we can see a protein coming together using only left-handed amino acids. You know, not the right ones, not in the right order, which is another level of complexity, but just using left-handed amino acids. Is it possible that evolution could happen? Okay, so let's go back to looking at this NASA example. When they were looking at what the possible simplest form of life is, and of course there are no simple forms of life, they discovered that, but they said to themselves, okay, if we're out there looking, here's what we'll look for. We'll look for at least a life that has 120 different proteins, and they're all made up of 420 properly arranged amino acids. Now, if you do the math here, 124 times 420, that means you would have to have 52,080 amino acids, and all of them have to be left-handed. So we could do an experiment. All right. Imagine that all of us here in the studio today and everyone watching had a quarter. And on that quarter, you have a head and a tail. We'll make heads be left-handed amino acids. We'll let tails be right-handed amino acids. And what we'll do is, imagine 52,080 of us, all at the same time, taking our quarters, all at the same time, flipping them in the air, all at the same time, catching them and putting them here. And every single one of us, all 52,080 of us, all get heads. 
What are the odds of that happening? What's the probability of that happening? Well, I did the math, and guess what? The probability of getting 52,080 left-handed amino acids to create a protein, the best case for evolution is this, one chance in 10 to the 14,136. Now, I think uh, Richard Dawkins ought to do the math, right? See, evolution of life is not possible. This is way beyond impossible. And so complexity tells us we have to use it as an informational pathway to say, wait a minute, I don't think that is possible. We need to look for an intelligent cause. You know, and it's even worse for evolution because proteins are specified in their complexity. You don't just get the 20. You have to put them in the right order. You have to bend them the right way. And this makes it even more complicated for evolution. But what this basically means is that you have a better chance of taking a ball and tossing it to the other side of the moon than for evolution to have ever happened. Ever. That's what it tells us. And that's what the science of complexity tells us. You know, there was a fellow, his name was uh, Dr. Thaxton, Bradley W.L. Thaxton. He wrote a book called Information and the Origin of Life. He said, in it, he talked about a physicist. His name was Jay Morowitz. He calculated the probability of a very tiny microbe, a microplasma appearing spontaneously. He said it was one chance raised to 10 to the 5 billionth power. A probability that you can't even imagine in your mind. So small, so impossible. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Robert Gange writes, he's a, a, he's a scientist in the field of cryophysics and information systems. He says the likelihood of life having occurred through a chemical accident is for all intents and purposes zero. It never could have happened, ever. Evolution could never, ever, ever have happened. So complexity then becomes an informational pathway. It says, hey, now we've got to start looking for an intelligent cause. Because guess what? The accidental cause just ain't happening. It's not there. And so what we know is that complex life requires a designer. These amazing machines that are extremely complex point to an intelligent source. There's no way that an accident or chance or necessity could ever cause that to happen. And so that's one way of looking at complexity, but there's another way. In the 1990s, a scientist, Dr. Michael Behe, came up with another way of looking at complexity. He called it irreducibly complex. And what basically was his inspiration for looking at this was something that Darwin said. It was a test that Darwin had on his own theory. In Charles Darwin's book, The Origin of the Species, he said this, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ or existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. And what Dr. Michael Behe, who is a microbiologist, did was he said, well, uh, <clears throat> uh, Darwin, there are lots of things that are complex systems that could never possibly have been organized by small, slight, successive changes. And what he called those was irreducibly complex systems. Here's what he wrote. He said, an irreducibly complex system cannot be produced by slight, successive modifications of a precursor system, because any precursor to an irreducibly complex system that is missing a part is, by definition, non-functional. And then he goes through his book and shows one example after another. The, the way to think about it, he gives, is the idea of a mousetrap. 
you look at a mousetrap and you say to yourself, okay, I've got all these parts to make this mousetrap work. And you ask yourself, which part could I take away and it still be a mousetrap? It still catch the mice. And the answer, of course, when you think through, is that there are no pl- there's no parts at all you could remove. You take away the cheese, there's no bait. You take away the backboard, there's no way for the spring to be attached. You take away the spring, you get the idea. All of these parts have to exist at the same time. They have to be formed and be there at the same time for this thing to function. And that, my friends, is what an irreducibly complex system is. And you can see them everywhere. Well, here's some that you can't see. The first thing he started talking about in his book was about the flagellum, which is a a little hair-like structure. And you can see there the design of that looks like a motor. He, he writes this. It's written about it in A Case for the Creator by Lee Strobel. It says, A flagellum is on the order of a couple of microns. A micron is about one twenty thousandth of an inch. Most of its length is the propeller. The motor itself would be maybe one one hundred thousandth of an inch. Even with all of our technology, we can't even begin to create something like this. And this is an irreducibly complex system. All the parts have to be there or it would not work. Here's another one that he talked about in your body today. It's called the ATP synthase molecule. And what this is, is an energy transport molecule in every one of your bodies. It's in your body and mine. What it does is it takes food energy and turns it into energy your body can use. Without it, you would not live. And as you can see the picture of it, it is a machine. They describe it like a machine. And every single part has to be there. And if, it's, if one part's missing, the whole thing doesn't work. It's irreducibly complex. You know, John Hopkins University says this about it. It says it's one of the most complex molecules ever revealed, almost six times larger than the blood molecule, hemoglobin. It's also, the researchers agree, one of the tiniest, most powerful motors ever identified inside your body. Irreducibly complex. And, of course, that crushes Darwin. It falsifies his test for his own theory. And he also talks about in his book the, something you can see in the, real, in the macro world, if you will. He talks about the bombardier beetle, which is a cute little insect that squirts out an annoying thing when it, his enemies come near and it gets annoyed. It'll squirt out something. He talks about how it's made. Inside this little creature, it's got these two glands, which themselves are probably irreducibly complex, secreting two different chemicals, hydrogen peroxide and hydroquinine. And then once they secrete that, they go into a collecting vessel, And then from the collecting vessel, they squirt into an explosion chamber, and then they mix, the chemicals mix in, and it's squirt out at the bad guy. And this is an irreducibly complex system. Not one part of it could be gone, and this thing still function. And so here's one you can see. He writes, if a biological system cannot be produced gradually, it would have to arise as an integrated unit in one fell swoop. And of course, That model is called the creation model, where you had a creator, a designer, who integrated it all together in one fell swoop. And that's what science is now coming to the conclusion about. I'll give you another example that you can see every single day of your life when you look at at irreducibly complex systems, and that's flight. One of the things I did for many years is I worked in aerospace as a research engineer. And I worked on aircraft, and flight is so cool. Flight is probably one of the neatest things and it's a irre- flight itself is an irreducibly complex system. I'll give you an example. You know, when you, have, when you have an aircraft, you have to have enough thrust to overcome the drag. You have to have enough lift to overcome the, the weight of gravity. All of that stuff has to be balanced. 
If it's not balanced, you, if you don't have enough lift, you don't get to overcome gravity. If you don't have enough thrust, you can't get the lift. Uh, another thing you need is, with an aircraft is you need to have everything in a center of gravity. You have to have your aircraft uh, aligned center, center of gravity so that it's not too heavy in the front, not too heavy in the back. You have to have control surfaces so that it can actually fly in the air. It can pitch and yaw and roll. But guess what? All of these things are found in flight when we look at the birds. The wing shape of a bird is perfectly suited to get lift. In fact, if you look at the wings, the feathers that birds, they actually have feathers that are classified as flight feathers. Because of their design, they're actually able to enable the bird to have lift. Uh, the surface area of birds, have you ever noticed that every single bird that's out there, regardless of its size, has exactly the right amount of surface area on their wings to get the lift for the kind of bird they are. That's a miracle in and of itself. All birds have, have ability to, to have propulsion. They have specially designed sockets in, in, their, uh, in their wings so that they can get these powerful thrusts and produce the kind of lift that they need. And of course, all birds have control surfaces. I know people that have collected birds, and one of the things that they do to collect birds is that they will take a bird and they will cut the control surfaces. And even though a bird has wings, it will stop flying because it cannot control itself in the air. And you have to have all of these things at the same time for you to have flight. And so birds, when you look out every day, you're looking at an irreducibly complex system. You know, Dr. Andrew McIntosh writes, that a bird can fly only because it has an exceedingly light bone structure, which is achieved by the bones being hollow. Many birds maintain skeleton strength by cross members within the hollow bones. Such an arrangement began to be used in the middle of this century for aircraft wings, and it's termed the Warren's Truss Arrangement. Here's a picture of it. Large birds, such as an eagle or a vulture, would simply break in pieces in midair if it were, there were some supposedly halfway stage in their skeletal development where they had not yet developed such cross members in their bones. So even the wings themselves and the, the bracing in the skeletal structure is an irreducibly complex system that could never have possibly come about by slight modifications. It had to all have been there at the same time in order for there to be a bird and in order for there to be flight. It's just amazing. Every time you see a bird, you're looking at design. Um, this one here, think about it. I'm not going to get into detail here about sexual reproduction, but I will share with you that in the Darwinian model, the evolutionary model, the, the most logical way to propagate your genes is asexually, right? This first little goo and produce itself again asexually, and then we go on that way. But the Bible says he made them male and female. And guess what? In our real world, that's what we see, males and females. We see all types of sexual reproduction. And if you were to study this, you would find that this is an irreducibly complex system. That parts have to work together, and if they do not work together, the whole thing doesn't work. The whole thing falls apart. So every time you see a male and a female of, of any uh, type of animal, you're looking at design. You're looking at creation, because they are irreducibly complex systems. Check it out yourself. Now, Dr. Michael Behe was asked, he said, you know, this idea of irreducible complex systems, you know, it's been around now for over a decade, almost two decades. And they were asking him, well, haven't the evolutionists just trounced you on the head over this stuff? Here's what he said. He said, it has attracted a lot of attention from people who have tried to knock it down, but they haven't been able to do it. 
Complex biological systems have yet to be explained by naturalistic means. You remember naturalistic philosophy? That's atheism. That's a fact. Even Darwinists admit that in their candid moments. And as science advances, we're continuing to find more and more complexity in the cellular world. And so what you can tell you, friends, is that by using complexity, you can see creation. You can see the hand of a designer. But where I'd like to close with this discussion is that we talked about complexity, but now I want to talk to you about language. Language is one of the thumbprints that we have that shows us that we have a designer. Let me explain what I mean. You know, ever since we've been curious about what's out there in space, we started building these large radio telescopes. And these radio telescopes look out and they're searching for radio waves. And what are they looking for? And all the noise, they're looking for something that has the appearance of language in it. That, For example, SETI has the Allen Telescope Array where they're out there looking, listening all the time, waiting to see if they can find technology of the future. They're looking for language. In fact, this is exactly what they said. Seth Stostak, he was written in his thing, How to Sort Signs of Artificial Life from the Real Thing. He's an astronomer for SETI. He said this. What, they asked him, what are the SETI scientists looking for? And here's what he said. Perhaps the extraterrestrials will preface their message with a string of prime numbers, or maybe the first 50 terms of the ever-popular Fibonacci series. Well, well, I like the way you put that. Well, there's no doubt that such tags would convey intelligence. So here's this man looking out into space, and if he finds anything that's from the science of mathematics, because that's what he's talking about here, it's prime numbers, Fibonacci series, he's talking about the language of mathematics, then if he found anything, well, certainly that's, I'm going to go right away and I'm going to say, hey, I found intelligent life out there somewhere. Okay, so let's talk about that. Language, mathematics is a language. And all languages have these things. They have symbols, they have grammar, they have meaning, and they have intent. That's what language is. Symbols, grammar, meaning, and intent. We have that in, in mathematics. We have it in our world. And when you think about language, imagine for a moment a Scrabble table. Now, you know, in, in evolutionists, I could take a bunch of evolutionists and put them over here and give them a bunch of, of Scrabble pieces and say, okay, chuck them a, a billion year, for a billion years, chuck your Scrabble pieces over on this Scrabble board. And, you know, as they were doing this, eventually you might find an A and a T come together and it would spell the word at, right? And maybe a C might be close by and say, well, that's cat. And we know that these things could happen by natural processes. But if you were to walk by a Scrabble board and you saw this, just some amazing dumb luck, you would instantly, if I were to say to you, hey, guess what? That happened by absolute sheer accident. You'd look at me and go, no, no, I don't think so. And the reason you would say that is because what this is exhibiting is language. There's, mean, there's symbols, the letters. There's grammar. There's meaning, and there's intent. And when you find those things, guess what? You've just found language. And when you find language, then you have found the product of an intelligent mind. Okay. Well, guess what? DNA, friends, is language. What's in every cell of your body is language. Uh, 
Francis Collins, who, who, wrote, who was the one who sequenced the human genome, indicates that DNA is the most efficient memory storage device that ever existed. It's six feet long, 800 times larger than the cell that it's in, and there's three billion genetic letters in, in human DNA. It's the most complex uh, data storage system ever on the planet. He says that a live reading of that code, in other words, if you were to read it, three letters at a time, day and night, nonstop, it would take you 31 years all the time. And so it's, it's one of the most complex things ever imaginable, and DNA is a language. You know, by, you, know, you know, computers, if you've ever seen a computer and looked at a program like an operating system running, you know that that operating system can be very useful. It can do many things. But what you may not know is behind that operating system is its binary code. And the binary code in computer systems is ones and zeros, organized in a specific way such that you can create an operating system that you and I can interface with. The genetic code is very similar. Instead of using two states, one and zero, it uses four chemicals. Very complex. And these four chemicals behind our genetic code is the same as a computer thing because it creates, instead of an operating system, it creates you. The instructions that create who you are. All these little numbers back and forth in the genetic code. Uh, even people who are computer and software experts recognize the incredibleness of DNA. Bill Gates wrote that DNA is like a software program, only much more complex than anything we have ever devised. Now imagine this for a moment. Imagine that one of our space probes made it out into deep space, way, 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 way out there, somewhere in imaginary land, and there was an alien civilization. And they found this probe. And once they took it apart, they would find the computer. And what would they find on the computer hard drive? Ones and zeros. And they would say, hmm, I wonder what this is. And once they put together these ones and zeros represented a higher order language, and that they represented an operating system, they would say, wow, this is language. And once they discovered language, they would say, ah, we have discovered something that was created by an intelligent mind. Or take the scientists, the archaeologists that, that looked at the first cuneiform tablets. When I look at these things, well, I just see somebody playing in the mud, you know, with a stick. But when they uncovered the fact that what these things represent is codes that are part of a language, they said, whoa, this was made by an intelligent mind. And that's what DNA is. DNA is a language. In fact, a man named Perry Marshall who has a website called CosmicFingerprints.com, he was a guy who was involved in sequencing DNA. He says this about it. He says, DNA is an encoding, decoding mechanism that stores and transmits the message of the living organism. Biologists have actually been using linguistic analysis to decode the human genome. Linguistic analysis, of course, is what you use when you're trying to understand languages. Tools that we must use to analyze languages are continually being used to figure out what all those genes actually mean. See, we know now that DNA in our, in our genes, every single cell of our body, is not an accident, it's information. And that information is a language. And once you have discovered language, you have discovered the source of that language, an intelligent mind, an intelligent designer. And that's what DNA is. DNA is, in every single cell of every single body, is the thumbprint of the creator in their life. And that's not just me that thinks this. 
You know, in this picture you're seeing here, this is Francis Collins, and he was the lead scientist that was involved in this team of people who sequenced the human genome. Next to him is uh, President Bill Clinton. And this, the, the occasion that they're there is that this is the day when they're announcing that they have completed their work, they have sequenced the DNA of a human. And Francis Collins is a man who was an atheist. He was a scientist, just like brought up on all the other ones, naturalistic philosophy. And here is what they said at this meeting. And this is found in his book. It's called The Language of God by Francis Collins. He said, Today we are learning the language in which God created life. you imagine an American president today saying that? <laughs> today we are learning the language in which God created life. We are gaining ever more awe for the complexity, the beauty, the wonder of God's most divine and sacred gift. You imagine that? Wow. And then when President Bill Clinton got off the pulpit, then Francis Collins walks up there and he said, some of the things he said was this. He said, It is humbling for me and awe-inspiring to realize that we have caught the first glimpse of our own instruction book previously known only to God. And what I love about this is that I, I, I purchased this book. I was looking at it. It's, uh, it's called The Language of God. And in it, he talks about how he went from an atheist to a theist because of the discovery of language in the DNA. And what he said was about this, these two statements was this. He said in his book, you know, I really wasn't trying to pander to Christians when I said that. I wrote those things for both the president and himself for one reason, and that was worship. He wrote them because he wanted to worship the God who put that information, that language in every cell of every body. Isn't that amazing? And so, friends, you can see creation, even though they can't because their worldview is atheism, their worldview is secular humanism, even though they have adopted this naturalistic philosophy and they force upon all of science these explanations that are materialistic that only a secular humanist and atheist would ever want to agree with, you can see creation. You can use scientific principles just as they do, and you can see God. You know, Psalms 104.24 says, O Lord, how manifold are thy works! In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. And that's a fact, friends. So as you look at these two worldviews, which one makes the most sense to you? Does naturalistic philosophy, its circular argument that's all atheism, or does creation, which you can actually use scientific principles to show that it had to have come from a designer? For me, it's creation, friends. You know, Dr. William Demensky says this. He says, within naturalism, the intelligibility of the world must always remain a mystery. Within theism, on the other hand, anything other than an intelligible world would constitute a mystery. Isn't it amazing how different these worldviews are? That we can go out and we can see creation, design, complexity, client organisms. We can understand and be at awe at what has been made. But they, on the other hand, it's still a mystery to all of them. I'm going to give the last word to Dr. Stephen Myers that he gave in an interview at uh, a university. 
Here's what he said to the university students when they were asking him questions about this idea of science. He says, The origin of modern science was spawned by scientists who had precisely this sort of awe. They were in the main Christians who believed that science was possible because nature was intelligible. It could be understood and comprehended by rational minds such as ourselves because it had been designed by a rational mind in the first place. That God had put into nature order and design and discernible pattern. That's what made it possible to do the hard work of looking at things and then eventually discerning that there was a pattern. Kepler said that scientists have the high calling of thinking God's thoughts after him. Design was part of the foundational assumption of modern science. Scientists assumed that nature was designed, and that's why they could do science. Now, roll the clock forward 300 years, and you have scientists saying that if we allow a design hypothesis in any realm of science, even if we're talking about something like the origin of the first life, that we are undermining the foundation of science. He closes with this word. In fact, we're getting back to the very foundation of science and to that awe and wonder that was the inspiration of the whole enterprise. And I think he's right. I'm really glad there there are scientists like him out there today that are trying to teach us, hey, whoa, let's don't go there. Let's don't go there to naturalistic philosophy. Let's don't allow the knowledge that we call science to be forced upon us through a philosophy Instead, let's allow what we see and the experiments that we can do and the mathematics that we can apply to show us that there is a designer. Because, friends, I want to tell you that where there is design, there had to have been a designer. And we have an incredible designer. Well, I hope that you have not swallowed that hook. Well, friends, as we close today, I want to tell you that uh, I know that as you go out from here and you look at that next thing out there in the creation, you consider complexity irreducibly complex systems and language, and look for them, and I guarantee you, you'll find them in what God has made. Well, let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, I'm praying for those people out there today that are watching this and the people here today, that as we leave this place, we'll not go with the worldview of naturalistic philosophy, this atheistic worldview, but yet we will go out and use science to show us that in fact, these things were designed that the probability of them coming to existence by chance or necessity is so impossible that we have to look to you, the one who started it all. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, friends. We'll see you for the next episode of Have You Swallowed the Hook? When they tell you, you have no choice. If this episode impacted you, Please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.